Hey guys, Jim Cox, FFG Advisors, Park Avenue Securities, and I'm here today with the third installment of my reading of Points of Rebellion by William O. Douglas. This uh, chapter is called, it's chapter three, final chapter, it's called A Start Towards Restructuring Our Society, and uh, just as an aside, Yesterday was the uh, second anniversary of the um, assault on protesters at Standing Rock. So, just a little bit of historical context. There always have been and always will be aggrieved persons. The lower their estate, the more difficult it is to find a right to fit the wrong being done. Part of our problem starts at that point. In New York City, a housing complaint must go to one of the 19 bureaus that deal with these problems. It takes a sharp and energetic layman or lawyer to find the proper desk in the bureaucracy where the complaint must be lodged. The finance company's motion for summary judgment might be defeated if the borrower had a lawyer who could show that the hidden charges when culminated resulted in usurious charges. But since no one appears in defense, a judgment is entered which is shortly used to garnish wage, the wages of the defendant. The landlord's motion for eviction might be defeated if the tenant had a lawyer who could prove that the real basis of eviction was the tenant's activities on civil rights. Perhaps he refused to pay right, rent until the landlord made repairs. Normally that is no defense. The historic rule disallows the failure to make repairs as a defense for the failure to pay rent. The theory was that the duty to pay rent was dependent upon the conveyance of the agreed-upon space irrespective of its condition. But in recent years, lawyers have pressed the opposite position and have sometimes won. The fact is that a person without a competent lawyer has some, that a person with a competent lawyer has some chance. One without a lawyer has only a little chance. The examples are as numerous as the woes and complaints of people. Most cases, civil certainly, and most criminal ones also, are lost and neglected in the onrush of daily life for lack of any spokesman for, indigent, for indigents before courts or administrative agencies. There are at least 30 million people in, the, in this category in the country. It was to service them that the Office of Economic Opportunity established neighborhood legal services in some 250 centers. In 1968, NL last process cases involving more hundred more than involving from 750,000 to 1 million people in a total of 500,000 cases. But the need is astronomical. It is estimated that the annual caseload produced by poor alone is somewhere between 5 million and 15 million. The demand for an ombudsman, especially in metropolitan areas, constantly recurs and reflects a complaint of rich and poor alike that the laws have become much too complex. What is irritating to the rich is often suffocating to the poor. Our fourth Chief Justice, John Marshall, who served from 1801 to 1834, said, quote, the very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury, end quote. 
Finding a right to correct a wrong is, however, the least of all the modern pressing problems. If poor and rich alike had lawyers to assert their claims, we would still be left with staggering problems. The vital, the vital problems will require a great restructuring of our society. Many issues, issues will re emerge. The most immediate and, though perhaps minor in the overall picture, concern two important areas. First is the problem of reallocating our resources. The second is the problem of creating some control or surveillance over key administrative agencies. The most explosive issues involve the reallocation of resources. For example, the $80 billion budget of the Pentagon poses inflammatory problems. If we prepare for wars, which ones are we to fight? Should we prepare for war or for cooperative international programs designed to prevent war and provide suitable substitutes for it? Should not domestic problems, racial discrimination, housing, food for the hungry, education, and the like, receive priority? The Pentagon is ready to start construction of the ABN system, ABM system, anti-ballistic missile system and is helping scientists prepare their articles praising it. The electronics industry is firmly entrenched in the Pentagon, and the industry will reap huge, huge profits from ABM, which started as a $5 billion item, but quickly jumped to $10 billion and $200 billion and even $400 billion. Congress has approved this program, though by a slim majority. The voices and pressures of the military-industrial complex seem always to suffocate the pleas of the poor, as well as the pleas of those who want to be done with wars and create a cooperative world pattern for a solution to international problems. Does social and economic justice always serve a secondary role in society? General David M. Shoup of the Marines has called the Pentagon and the defense industry a powerful public opinion lobby War has become to American civilians an exciting adventure, a competitive game, and an escape from the dull routine of peacetime. Our whole approach to world problems has changed. We now ha have what General Shoup calls the military task force type of diplomacy. We have eight treaties to help defend 48 nations if they ask us, or if we choose to interve intervene. Our militarism threatens to become more and more dominant force in our lives. This is an inflammatory issue, and dissent on it will not be stilled. The advances of technology present the problem of increasing disemployment in the private sector. We brag about our present low unemployment, but that is due to Vietnam. Without Vietnam, we would have 15% or more unemployment. Must we fight wars to have full employment? Technology is, this, is in the saddle and displaces manpower. The old problem of unemployment has become the new problem of disemployment. How many of the present 18-year-old men and women will be permanently disemployed? Thoughts such as these fill the hearts of the young with dismay. Automation is more complete, in the more complete in the petrochemical industry than in any others. From the mid-1950s on, there have been almost steady decline in the number of all employees in the petroleum refineries 
And the same is true of production workers from 147,000 in 1953 down to 90,000 in 1967. An ever-increasing quantity of food and industrial goods is produced by a rapidly decreasing fraction of workers. These displaced sometimes end up making what is called redundant goods, items and services of value, but quite secondary or even needless measured by basic human requirements. Those engaged in various aspects of the Moon Project are an illustration. Most redundant goods projects do not produce what the people need, e.g. more hospital beds, urban projects that replace dirty ghettos, and the like. Some who are presently on welfare represent the third generation of one family on relief rolls. There is no work available, and some of these people now think they are caught in a, as victims of a system that pays people to be poor. Training for industrial work can take care of a portion of these people, but with the great onrush of population, private industry, unless aided by wars, will not be able to meet the employment needs. The answer, of course, is the creation of a public sector in which people will do more than rake leaves and sell apples on street corners. A Senate subcommittee in 1968 proposed that 1.2 million socially useful jobs be created within the next four years in the public sector, but the proposal seemed to die there. Where is the blueprint for the public sector? How do the disadvantaged go about the promotion of such a blueprint? If history is a guide, the powers that be will not respond until there is a great crisis. For those in power are blind devotees to private enterprise. They accept that degree of socialism implicit in the vast subsidies to the military-industrial complex, but not that type of socialism that maintains public pro projects for the disemployed and the unemployed alike. I believe it was Charles Adams who described our upside-down welfare state as socialism for the rich, free enterprise for the poor. The great welfare scandal of the age concerns the dole we give rich people. Percentage depletion for oil interests is, of course, the most notorious. But there are others. Any tax deduction is, in reality, a tax expenditure. For it means that, on the average, the Treasury pays 52% of the deduction. When we get deeply into the subject, we learn that the cost of public housing for the poorest 20% of the people is picayune compared to the federal subsidy of the housing cost of the wealthiest 20%. Thus, for 1962, Alvin Shore, in Explorations in Social Policy, computed that while we spend $870 million on housing for the poor, the tax deductions for the top 20% amounted to $1.7 billion. And the 1968 report on the National Commission on Civil Disorder tells us that during a 30-year period when the federal government was subsidizing 650,000 units of low-cost housing, it provided invisible supports such as cheap credit and tax deductions for the construction of more than 10 million units of middle and upper class housing. The big corporate farmer who has varied business interests has a large advantage over the small farmer. The farm corporation can write off profits from non-farm enterprises against farm losses, 
Moreover, it gets low capital gains rate of tax in situations such as the following. A corporation buys cattle and keeps them for several years, taking the maintenance costs as a farming loss and thereby reducing its profits from other sources. Then it sells the herd and any profit on the sale is taxed at 25%. Like examples are numerous in our tax laws, each marking a victory of some powerful lobby. The upside-down welfare state helps the rich get richer and the poor poorer. Other subsidies receive a greater reverence. Railroads, airlines, shipping, these are all subsidized, and those companies' doors are not kicked down by the police at night. Publishers get a handsome subsidy in the form of low second-class mail rates, and publishers' rights are meticulously honored. The subsidies given farmers are treated not as gratuities, but as matters of entitlement. The airspace used by radio and TV is public property, but the permittees are not charged for the use of it. Of all these, only the welfare recipient is singled out for degrading supervision and control. Moreover, the poor man's welfare may get cut off without any hearing. Mr. Justice Holmes uttered a careless dictum when he said that no man has a, quote, constitutional right to be a policeman. The idea took hold that public employment was a privilege, not a right, and therefore conditions could be attached to it. The notion spread to public welfare. A needy person could be denied public health help if he did not maintain a certain abode the welfare worker approved of. A person on welfare has no Fourth Amendment rights. The police are empowered to kick down the door of his home at midnight without any search warrant in order to investigate welfare violations. But the largesse granted to the radio and the TV industry, though through permits issued, may not be revoked without meticulous regard for procedural due process. The specter of hunger that stalks the land is likely to ignite people in violent protest. Families that make less than $3,000 a year number 13 million dollars, or 13 million people. Families making less than $2,000 a year, 11 million. And families making less than $1,000 a year, 5 million. The condition is not peculiar to any particular state, but is nationwide. Of course, a rural family making in the neighborhood of $3,000 a year may be relatively well off if it has a cow, chickens, and a vegetable garden. But as the poor are driven from the land by the technological revolution in agriculture and the pileup in the urban centers, these statistics on our poor become more ominous. The federal food program is not responsive to that growing need. It is designed by the agro-business lobby to restrict production, keep prices high, and assure profits for the producers. That lobby controls the Department of Agriculture, which as a result has made feeding the poor a subordinate and secondary function. In one year, Texas producers who constitute 0.02% of the Texas population receive $250 million in subsidies while the Texas poor, who constitute 28.8% of the Texas population, only receive $7 million in food assistance. Of the 30 million poor, 
less than six million participate in either a national food stamp program or the surplus commodity program. A pilot food stamp project was established in two counties in South Carolina in 1969. If a family makes under $360 a year, it gets food stamps for free under that pilot, pilot project. A poor family making more than that but less than $1,000 pays for food stamps, even though the family income is not sufficient to meet family necessities. Nationwide, 17% of the family budget goes for food, on average. The poor who buy food stamps pay much more. A family of four makes, say, $1,000 a year and pays $40 a month for food stamps that are worth $70. That helps, but the family still cannot afford it. Moreover, these food stamp programs do not exist as a matter of right. While the federal government pays some of their costs, the state and local government, not Washington, D.C., must initiate the food stamp program. What do local people think about their poor? That they are a worthless lot? That hard work and industry would cure their lot? That if the local poor are well-fed, they may stay. But if they are left on their own, they may emigrate and settle down in some metropolitan ghetto. The local agencies also determine what families are eligible for food stamps. Their word is law, for there is no procedure and no agency or surveillance to make sure that people are not made ineligible because of race, creed, or ideological views. Retailers who may receive food stamps and turn them into the local bank for cash have prescribed remedies if they are discriminated against but the faceless, voiceless poor have no such recourse. The hungry people have to go to the county courthouse to be processed for, quote, eligibility. This chore, an easy one for, a for the sophisticated, is very nearly a barrier to the illiterate poor. Getting to town some 30 or 40 miles away is one difficulty. Standing in line a day or more and being interrogated on personal affairs by a complete stranger is another barrier. If the food program is to be effective, the agency people must take it into the hovels of the poor. One aspect of the hunger problem concerns school lunches. Originally started to help dispose of surpluses, these and thus protect the producers against declines in the market, they are now part of the Feeding the Hungry project. Official reports give glowing accounts of the progress made, but there has, and there has been some. But again, whether there are school lunches in any community depends upon the local school board. In schools where there are few poor students, the poor are fed. In schools where most of the children are poor, the school board often does not supply enough money to feed them all. The person who must pick those allowed to eat on, a lim on the limited budget is the principal. The result is that some hungry children go without lunches. 80.8% in Virginia, 70.4% in West Virginia, 73.5% in Pennsylvania, and 86.8% in Maryland. Overall, the national figure shows that at least two out of three needy children do not receive school lunches. 
Yet the total number of school children from families at the rock-bottom poverty level is 6 million. We do not know how the 2 million is chosen from the 6, but we do know that at times the principal disqualifies a hungry child based on his judgment of the moral character of the parents, not on the child's need. And there is no way for the parents or the child to review the ruling of the principal. 99 of the 253 counties in Texas took no part in the federal food program in 1968. Texas has the largest farm subsidy total in the nation, but denies food aid to more people than any other state. In Tuscaloosa, Alabama, 49 producers divided $605,000 for not growing crops, while 21,409 poor people had no access to the federal food program. Some states, notably New York, Louisiana, Massachusetts, and South Carolina, contribute to the cost of school lunches. But in the other states, the local contribution is minor. The federal government pays about one-third of the cost of the lunches if donated food is included. The children pay the rest. No matter what the propagandists say, hungry school children who have had lunches in the main either pay for the food themselves or are beneficiaries of the meager amount of the federal, gov the federal government has put into the program. In 1968, when Resurrection City was erected in Washington, D.C., there were congressional hearings on this program. An American of Mexican ancestry testified, quote, <clears throat> We are here with our brothers of other races, here in unity in love for each other. We are all poor. We speak for the oppressed, for the hungry thousands that exist in this country, to the tortures of many kinds that have been applied to us. We have become immune and still exist because our pride and honesty keeps us going. We are ghosts, the sons of chiefs, gods, kings, and revolutionists, here to haunt you for what is rightfully ours the human right to exist. We come here with the same problems and the same objectives. We are a proud race of people in a racist society. We look, we feel, we eat sometimes, we sleep, we walk, we love, and we die the same. If we are to be heard here and across the country today, it has taken a long time for you to hear the complaints up to now, but don't forget, we Mexican-American people have waited 400 years to be heard. If you intend to help us, do so now. Don't pass the buck or stall any longer. End quote. The problem of hunger, like the ghetto problem and the racial problem, has festered for years. The Puritan ethic that hard work and thrift will take anyone to the top has conditioned much of our thinking and has made us slow to deal with the problems of hunger in ghettos. Those problems suddenly loom large and ominous because of the mounting population and the growing dependence of people on government. Property has assumed a different form. To the average man, it is no longer cows, horses, chickens, and a plot of land. It is government largesse farm subsidies, Social Security, vendors' benefits, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, Medicare, and the like. 
Even businesses, even business has a towering stake in government largesse, as witnessed the $80 billion budget of the Pentagon. The political struggles ahead are for increasing shares of government largesse. The opposed forces are numerous. On one side are powerful lobbies such as the industrial military complex, the agribusiness lobby, and the highway lobby. These are powerful spokesmen. The poor, the unemployed, and the disemployed are opposed, and they are not well organized. The use of violence as an instrument of persuasion is therefore inviting and seems to the discontented to be the only effective protest. Our second great task is to control the American bureaucracy. As the problems of the nations and the states have multiplied, the laws became more uh, prolific and the discretion granted the administrators become greater and greater. Licenses or permits are issued if the agency deems it to be, quote, in the public interest. Management of national forests, national parks, is left to federal agencies, which in turn promulgate regulations governing the use of these properties, but seldom allow for a public voice to be heard against any plan of the agency. The examples are legion, and they cover a wide range of subjects from food stamps to highway locations to spraying of forests or grasslands to eliminate certain species of trees or shrubs, to the location of missile bases, to the disposal of sewage and industrial waste, to the granting of offshore oil leases. Corporate interests, as well as poor people, unemployed people, as well as the average member of affluent society, are affected by these broad, generalized grants of authority to administrative agencies. The corporate interests have been largely taken care of by highly qualified lawyers acting in individual cases by bar associations proposing procedural reforms that define, for example, the aggrieved persons who are standing to object to agency orders or decisions. But the voices of the mass of people are not heard, and the administrative agencies largely have their own way. Moreover, the establishment controls the establishment controls those agencies. That control does not come from corrupt practices or from venality. It results from close alliances made out of working relations, from memberships in the same or similar clubs from the warp and woof of social relations, from the prospects offered the administrator for work in the ranks of the establishment if he is the right and proper man. The administrative office is indeed the staging ground where men are trained and culled and finally chosen to the high salary post in the establishment that many carry, that carry many desirable fringe benefits. The New Dealers mostly ended up there. Under Lyndon Johnson, there was lively competition for administrative men who would, in two years, have made a million working for the establishment. That is a powerful influence among many agencies, and it results in those who have agency discretion exercising it for the benefit of those who run the corporation state. And those people are, by and large, the exploiters. 
Anyone who opposes one of those federal agencies whose decision may destroy a lake or a river or a mountain knows something about the feeling of futility that is abroad in the land. Agencies, notably the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management, spray public lands to get rid of a shrub like sagebrush or a tree like mesquite. It is said that riddance of these species increases the supply of grass. The driving force behind the scene is the cattle baron who grazes his stock on public lands. Neither his request for spraying nor the agency's decision to authorize it is put down for a hearing. Though Rachel Carson's silent spring has been out for some years, and though the dangers of pesticides is increasingly known, the agency has no control plot where the precise effect of a particular herbicide on our ecology has been studied. The agency, in other words, goes at the problem blindly. It will learn what damage the spray does only years after the spraying has been completed. Moreover, the public is not allowed to protest at a hearing or tender expert testimony as to what the particular spray will do to the environment. This is public land. Why should not members of the public have a right to be heard? No satisfactory answer has been given, only the desire of the agency to be rid of all outside interference. Once in a blue moon, a hearing is held. Early in 1969, the Forest Service proposal to spray dry fork in the Bighorn National Forest in Wyoming was put down for a hearing so that Norma Ketchen, by no other, but no other member of the public, could be hear, heard. Why only that one lady? Senator Gail McKee, at her request, spoke to the Forest Service about the project. Because of his political pressure, this one lady was heard. But spraying regularly takes place with no one being heard. Private persons, as well as government agencies, do this spraying. Why should a private owner not be required to put his spraying project down for a public hearing. He may own the mesquite trees, but he does not own the wildlife that comes and goes across his property. In 1968 and 1969, great stretches of the Sonora Desert in Arizona were sprayed to kill mesquite in order to help the cattlemen. Such a large number of kangaroo rats and other rodents were killed that the horned owls left the country for lack of food. Does not the horned owl have values for the environment? I remember an alpine meadow in Wyoming where willows lined a clear cold brook. Moose browsed the willow, beaver came and made a dam which in time created a lovely pond which produced eastern brook trout for up to five pounds. A cattle baron said that the sagebrush was killing the grass so the forest service sprayed the entire area. It killed the sagebrush and the willow too. The moose disappeared and so too did the beaver. In time the dam was washed out and the pond was drained. Ten years later some of the willow have, some of the willow was still killed out. The beaver never returned and nor did the moose. Why should a thing of beauty that hundreds of people enjoy be destroyed to line the pockets of one cattle baron? The agency decision that destroys the environment may be cutting 
may be the cutting of a virgin stand of timber or the construction of a road up a wilderness valley. Hundreds of actions such as this take place every year, and it is the unusual case on which the public is heard. In 1961-62, the Forest Service made plans to build a road up to the beautiful Minan River in Oregon, one of the few roadless valleys in the state. It is a it is choice wilderness, delicate in structure, sparse in timber, but filled with game. We knew that the mine we knew the Minan pleaded against the road. The excuse was cutting timber, a poor excuse because of the thin stand. The real reason was road building on which the lumber company would make a million dollars. The road would be permanent, bringing automobiles in by the thousands, making a shambles of the mining. We spoke to Senator Wayne Morris about the problem, and he called over Orville Freeman, Secretary of the Agriculture, the agency that supervises the Forest Service. Morris pounded the table and demanded a public hearing, one that was reluctantly given. Dozens of people appeared on the designated day in La Grande, Oregon, not a blessed one speaking in favor of the plan. Public opposition was so great that the plan was suffocated. Why should not the public be heard whenever an agency decides to take action that will or may despoil the environment? The design of a highway as such as its location may be ruinous to economic, aesthetic, scenic, recreation, or health interests. By highway design and construction, the Bureau of Public Roads has ruined 50 trout streams in the Pacific Northwest. Gravel and rocks have been dumped into streams, making the water too fast for trout or salmon. Rivers have been dredged, with the result that they have become sterile sluiceways. Why should not the public be allowed to speak before damage of that character is done? Racial problems often are the key to a freeway crisis. In Washington, D.C., the pressure from the establishment was so great on the planners that the national corridor for the freeway was abandoned and the freeway laid out so that it would roar through the black community. That experience is not unique. Many urban areas have felt the same discrimination. The blacks having no voice in the decision rise up in protests, some reacting violently. Why should not all people, blacks as well as whites, be allowed to appear by right before a tribunal that is impartial and not a stooge for a powerful highway lobby to air their complaints and state their views? Why should any special interest be allowed to relocate a highway merely to serve its private purposes? The highway lobby makes, a bureau, makes the Bureau of Public Roads almost king. In 1968, when Alan Boyd proposed hearing procedures before federally supported highways were either located or designed, public hearings on the proposed regulations were held. Every one of our 50 governors appeared and sent word opposing the regulations. Why? Because the National Highway Lobby and the state highway departments have such a close working partnership that nothing should be done to disrupt it. That means that they think that individuals 
should have no voice in planning. Yet the location of a highway may, A, ruin a park, as those in Washington, D.C. know well with Glover Archibald Park, B, ruin the scenic values of a river, C, needlessly divide a unitary suburban area into separate entities, D, ruin a trout stream, as some 50 highways in the Pacific Northwest have done, E, have an ugly racial overtone as where a freeway is diverted by the Bureau from a white area and sent roaring through the middle of a black section. The values at stake are both aesthetic and spiritual, social and economic, and they bear heavily on human dignity and responsibility. It is a faceless, is a faceless bureaucrat to tell us what is beautiful. Whether a particular type of highway is socially desirable for the country's best trout stream. Whether a particularly described highway is more desirable than a wilderness park. Whether the blacks should be sent scurrying so that whites can live in peace and quiet. Where do the blacks go but into more crowded neighboring slums, as there are no suburban slums yet created? Offshore leasing of oil lands has become another explosive issue. Offshore oil wells may result in leakages that ruin a vast stretch of beaches, as recently happened in Santa Barbara. Conservationists, if heard, could have built a strong case against permits without any hearings. Secretary of the Interior, Udall, was allowed to do the bidding of oil companies and knuckle under to the pressure of President Johnson to start more money coming into the federal treasury to wage war in Vietnam. The result was the beaches at Santa Barbara were ruined by one man's Ipsa Dixit. The tragedies that are happening to our environment as a result of agency actions are too numerous to list. They reach into every state and mount in intensity as our resources diminish. People march and protest, but they are not heard. As a result, Congressman Richard L. Ottinger of New York has recently proposed that a National Council on the Environment be created and granted power to stay impending agency action that may despoil natural resources and to carry the controversy into the courts or before Congress if necessary. Violence has no constitutional sanction, and every government from the beginning has moved against it. But where grievances pile high and most elective spokesmen represent the establishment, violence may be the only effective response. In some parts of the world, the choice is between peaceful revolution and violent revolution to get rid of the unbearable yoke on the backs of people, either religious, military, or economic. The Melville account from Guatemala is in point. Thomas R. Melville and Arthur Melville are two Mary Knoll fathers, and Marion Bradford a nun who later married Thomas. These three worked primarily among the Indians to make who make up about 56% of the population of Guatemala. They saw the status quo solidly aligned against the Indians, being financed by our Alliance for Progress and endowed with secret intelligent 
service to ferret out all social disturbers. Between 1966 and 1967, they saw more than 2,800 intellectuals, students, labor leaders, and peasants assassinated by right-wing groups because they were trying to combat the ills of Guatemalan society. Men trying to organize unions were shot, as were men who were trying to form cooperatives. The Melvilles helped the Indians get a truck to transport lime from the hills to the processing plant, an operation historically performed by the Indians who carried 100-pound packs on their backs. A truck would increase the production of the Indians and help raise the standard of living. But the powers that be ran the truck off of the road into a deep canyon and did everything else possible to defeat this slight change in the habits of Indians. And so the Indians, faced with the issue of whether to whether the use of violence in self-defense was justified, the simple question they asked the priest was whether they should go to whether they would go to hell if they used violence. The Melvilles said this, quote, Having come to the conclusion that the actual state of violence composed of the malnutrition, ignorance, sickness, and hunger of the vast majority of the Guatemalan population is the direct result of a capitalistic system that makes the defenseless Indian compete against the powerful and well-armed landowner, my brother and I decided not to be silent accomplices of the mass murder of, that this system generates. We began teaching the Indians that no one will defend their rights if they do not defend them themselves. If the government and oligarchy are using arms to maintain them in their position of misery, then they have the obligation to take up arms and defend their God-given right to be men. Their final conclusion was, our response to the present situation is not because we have read either Marx or Lenin, but because we have read the New Testament. That is also what Dom Helder Camarera, Archbishop of Recliffe, uh, Brazil, was telling the world in 1969. My vocation, he said, is to argue, argue, argue for moral pressure upon the lords. The lords are the slave masters. The establishment in Brazil and the United States now dedicated to crushing any move towards violent upheaval, though violence is not open to Archbishop Camera, he said, I respect the option for violence. Guatemala and Brazil are token federal uh, feudal situations characteristic of the whole world. They represent a status quo that must be established, that must be abolished. They represent a status quo that must be abolished. We of the United States are not in that category, but the risk of violence is a continuing one in our society because the ongoing generation has two two deep-seated convictions. First, the welfare program works in reverse by siphoning off billions to the rich and leaving millions of people hungry and other millions feeling the sting of discrimination. Second, the special interests that control the government use its powers to favor themselves and to perpetuate regimes of oppression, exploitation, and discrimination against the many. 
There are only two choices, a police state in which all dissent is suppressed or rigidly controlled, or a society where law is responsive to human needs. If society is to be responsive to human needs, a vast restructuring of our laws is essential. Realization of this need means adults must awaken to the urgency of the young man's unrest. In other words, there must be created an adult unrest against the inequities and injustices in the present system. If the government is in jeopardy, it is not because we are unable to cope with revolutionary situations. Jeopardy means that either the leaders or the people do not realize they have all the tools required to make the revolution come true. The tools and the opportunity exist. Only the moral moral imagination is missing. If the budget of the Pentagon were reduced from $80 billion to $20 billion, it would still be over twice as large as that of any other agency in the government. Starting with vast reductions in its budget, we must make the Pentagon totally subordinate in our lives. The poor and disadvantaged must have lawyers to represent them in the normal civil problems that now haunt them. The laws must be revised so as to eliminate their present bias against the poor. Neighborhood credit unions could would be vastly superior to the finance companies with their record of anguished garnishments. Hearings must be made available so that the important decisions of federal agencies may be exposed to public criticism before they are put into effect. The food program must be drastically revised so that its primary purpose is to feed the hungry rather than to make the corporate farmer rich. A public sector for employment must be created that extends to meaningful and valuable work. It must include many arts and crafts and theater in the industries, training of psychiatric and social workers, and specialists in the whole gamut of human interests. The universities should be completely freed from CIA and Pentagon control through grants of money or otherwise. Faculties and students should have the basic control so that the university will be a revolutionary force that helps shape the restructuring of society. A university should not be an adjunct of business, nor of the military, nor of the government. Its curriculum should teach change, not the status quo. That the dialogue between the people and the powers that be can start. It may be po- possibly, and it may be possibly keep us all from being victims of the corporate state. The constitutional battle of the blacks has been won, but equality of opportunity has, in practice, yet been achieved, not yet been achieved. There are many, many steps still necessary. The secret is continuous progress. Whatever the problem, those who see no, no escape are hopelessly embittered. A minimum necessity is measurable change. George III was the symbol against which founders made a revolution now considered bright and glorious. George III had not crossed the seas to fasten a foreign yoke on us. 
George III and his dynasty had established and nurtured us, and all that he had, all that he did, was by no means oppressive, but a vast restructuring of laws and institutions was necessary if the people were to be content. That restructuring was not forthcoming, and there was a revolution. We must realize that today's establishment is the new George III. Whether it will continue to adhere to its, his tactics, we do not know. If it does, the redress, honored in tradition, is also revolution. Poets and authors have told us that our society has been surfeited with goods that our, peop that our people are mostly well-fed, that marketing and advertising devices have put in our hands all manner and form of gadgets to meet any whim, but that we are unhappy and not free. The young generation sees this more clearly than our parents do. The youngsters who rise up in protest have not formulated a program for action. We few want to destroy the system. The aim for most of them is to regain the freedom of choice that their ancestors lost, to be free, to be masters of their own destiny. We know by now that technology can be toxic as well as tonic. We know by now that if we make technology our the predestined force in our lives, man will walk to the measure of its demands. We know how leveling that influence can be, how easy it is to computerize man and make him a servile thing in a vast industrial complex. This means we must subject the machine technology to control and, eat and cease despoiling the earth and filling people with goodies merely to make money. The search of the young today is more specific than the ancient search for the Holy Grail. The search for the youth today is for ways and means to make the machine and the vast bureaucracy and corporation state and the government that runs that machine the servant of man. That is the revolution that is coming. That revolution now that the people hold the residual powers of government, need not be a repetition of 1776. It could be a revolution in the nature of an explosive political regeneration. It depends on how wise the establishment is. If, with its stockpile of arms, it resolves to suppress the dissenters, America will face, I fear, an awful ordeal. The end. Again, uh, William O. Douglas, Associate Chief Justice, United States Supreme Court, from 1939 until, I believe, mid-1970s. Um, if you have any comments, questions, please message me. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you have a chance, grab, a, grab your own copies and... Uh, learn more about, you know, this kind of uh, the work that he shares. Thanks again. I'll talk to you later. Bye.